This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. I am here with Keith Cooper, partner at Morrison Rothman Law Firm, and uh, we are here to talk about cloning stuff. How are you doing, Keith? <laughs> cloning stuff. I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> Good. So I've uh, had the pleasure of working behind the scenes with Keith a bunch in the past couple of years. Uh, I've found him just really easy to talk to, a really good source of knowledge. And to be blunt, somebody I would be scared shitless of if I walked into court and saw him standing on the other side. <laughs> so, you know, you know, while your whole team's been great, uh, you know, it's, it's cool to see you here. I think this is this is going to be interesting. I, I appreciate that. But if you could let my wife know that she should be scared shitless of me, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> That does not work in my house. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully some some cloners after this will uh, will also be scared of you here because um, it's a it's a big problem that we have. And since the the retro gaming and creating scene is so small, it affects people pretty pretty hard. Whereas you know if Sony gets cloned, yeah, it stinks, but no one's putting Sony out of business for cloning one or two products. Whereas if your entire product line consists of one or two products that get cloned, then it's really damaging. So um, I guess, would you give us not a moral, because that's usually where I come in talking about what I feel like is cloning, but from a legal point of view, what exactly is a cloned design? Could it be a logo? Could it be hardware, software, all of the above? You know, it, well, that's interesting because um, there's multiple. You you just managed to hit the trifecta of intellectual property by referencing concepts from copyright, trademark, and patent. Right. I've been paying so, attention. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, typically in the clone, I mean, cloning is infringement, right? If it's actual cloning, and there's various degrees as to what's permissible, what's not permissible, what's infringement, what's not infringement, but. Anything that is the use of somebody intellectual's property without a license, arguably, is infringement, could be could be cloning. So just going through kind of the brief things that you had mentioned, you talk about logos because that's the easiest one to dispose of. Logos, slogans, uh, but, you know, brand names, that sort of thing is typically the subject of trademark. And the prohibition against using a trademark or a substantially substantially similar as a copyright concept, but in the trademark world, we talk about if, if it's likely to cause confusion among consumers or like there, there's a likelihood of confusion between one logo and another logo or one name and another name, you get into trademark infringement. And what the prohibition there is using a name or logo in connection with advertising, marketing, um, or maybe a false impression of endorsing a particular product or service that, that you're producing. So that's kind of one level. So uh, you look at the name, you look at the logo, then you, you're looking presumably at trademark infringement. Logos can include artwork and artwork is what is subject to copyright infringement. And from a game element perspective, the typical copyrightable elements that we see in the games, you may, I think you mentioned code, software, software code can be copyrightable, but more not tangible, it's not the right word because this is all intangible property, but but the more um, identifiable areas than the code are things like artwork, graphics, music, uh, st- storylines. If you write a script and you know the you know Red Dead Redemption or something that it's fairly uh, has a fairly robust script to it, the verbiage that you're utilizing in the script, those are all 
elements of copyright. Then you mentioned the hardware. Hardware, probably more toward, you know, in the patent idea, if it's a, a novel technology that's an original technology, um, I mean, there's, I, I'm not, patents are not my area, so I'm, I'm just going to give you a general outline. But the patent area is something that would, would usually encompass like the hardware, physical device, uh, anything that has a utilitarian or a util, util, utility function attached to it is typically uh, patents. And then the only one thing that's where they bleed over together, the interesting thing is ideas typically are the subject of patents. So you can get a patent on an idea. You can get the exclusive rights to use that idea, that patent. Copyrights expressly do not cover ideas. And that's where so many of the game cloning situations are, come into play is, is this an idea that is not subject to copyright protection or is it an expression of an idea that is copyright subject to copyright inspection? And that's where all the cases fall is whether something's a protectable idea or whether it's an expression of an idea, because that's the difference between copyright infringement and not. And there are some pretty cut and dry areas of that and some gray areas. Like if I say, you know, to your point, if I say, hey, we should make a rocket that goes to Mars and somebody makes one, I'm not suing them for stealing my idea. But if I actually built the prototype of a rocket and a big company comes around and suddenly they have the exact same one, that is that is fightable. And then there's all of the areas in between where things get a little tricky, I guess. Is that correct? Well, you know, using that example, which is actually a really good example. Um, the, you mentioned an idea. I want to build a rocket ship and fly to Mars. Okay. Now the building, constructing the device to do that, probably more subject of patent, right? Are you coming up with this technology that enables you to launch it? Uh, much of the design, this is why it's interesting because this really applies in the gaming world as well, but the design of the rocket, when you talk about the design of the rocket, you build one rocket design, I build one rocket design, they're virtually identical. You could say, well, that's my design, that's, you know, that my, my rocket design, and you copied that. First of all, can't protect the idea of building a rocket ship to go to Mars, to the, you know, and to the implementation of that idea, the hardware, to use it, you know, from the gaming space, um, may be subject to patent protection, but the rocket design itself, if my design copies your design, is that a clone or is it not? Well, in the world of copyright, you look at the function of that design and that design is to be aerodynamic and it has to launch at a, at a particular trajectory and it has to travel a certain distance. And the design of that rocket ship, to the extent that it is, it encompasses the utility to go do that, that's not going to be protectable by copyright. And this is a, a, an idea hate to use that word, but this concept, which is another word for idea, is um, also you see this in the gaming world. Now, if you take that same rocket, now you're going to add, you know, tails, fins, you know, whatever for to help stabilize it. Those are all the subject of utility. But if you put a purely aesthetic components under that rocket ship, for example, the paint, the not necessarily the color, but you put a design on there. OK, and I don't know what Elon Musk is using, but, you know, for the SpaceX design, there's your logo, right? There's your trademark. But to the extent it has artwork on it, it serves no utility function whatsoever. And it's a complete just design, a creative design. It's a piece of art that's slapped on the rocket that has no utility function to it that's where it's protectable by copyright so now if my rocket might have the same design as your rocket but if you have a certain artwork on that or certain components strapped to that rocket that serves no utilitarian function they're just purely aesthetic if i use those features for my rocket design, I'm infringing some of your intellectual property, your copyright. But if I don't, and we both just have a similarly designed rocket using the utility purposes, no infringement. I'm, I, I don't know if that explains it or not. No, but not only did you explain that good, uh, explain it well, um, but that actually leads me to, to something that I wanted to bring up first because it's US versus US. And then right after this, we'll get to other countries, which is I'm sure where it's gonna get complicated. But there was a situation a few years ago where 
there was a company that behind the scenes definitely cloned another product. We all know it, everybody, you know, but proving it is always the problem. And their stance was, oh, well, we want to use this device to put old game consoles using chip one, two, three on a flat panel. And so it's, you know, it's not stealing your design because we just used the same chip. Now, anybody who's, and, you know, without, I'm not saying anybody's name unless I have proof. So without, you know, solid proof here, I'll just say company X um, very clearly cloned it. And I would be willing to bet one of my fancy monitors back there that not only did they clone it, they dumped the software from the chip and cloned that too, but deleted out anything that seems like it could point back to the original writer and added their own in. So from that point, just like your rockets, you would have to actually prove that they did that because the end result. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. There's two rockets. It's two devices. But there's no proof on how, how they got there. And that's something that seems like kind of impossible to win one of those whoever has more money to spend on lawyers wins type of thing and you end up spending more than you spent on the product anyway um but if that wasn't the case or if somebody wanted to fight that if somebody said no this was my life's work this is my only product which it was not in this case luckily but um going about defending that in the u.s from one u.s company to another that is as straightforward as contacting a lawyer you know, obviously, you know, I'll put the link to you guys first, but, and then coming up with proof that first you created this design, here's the proof that I did it. And here's some sort of proof that it was stolen. Is that correct? Is that a decent overview? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few different concepts in there, but I can give you some general parameters. Typically in these types of cases, at least, you know, because this again comes up relatively frequently, there's many of famous examples of in the gaming space uh, where the court has had to analyze, is this a clone? Is this not? The very first thing is they, they have to identify what the copyrightable elements are, because again, you can't protect ideas. And so, you know, one of the famous cases that, that I mentioned uh, was what, if you remember that, I remember the game. I'm old enough because I'm an old school gamer. I go back to Pong, okay? And I've had a love of gaming ever since. I've been addicted to gaming ever since. And one of the games from that general era, one of the first arcade games that I remember coming out was the game Asteroids. It was very simple in design, very basic. And a little triangle ship and, and little asteroids. They were just, it was very two-dimensional, just outloids. There's no three-dimensional elements to it whatsoever, just kind of the elements of the rock shape. And you, you know, had a little pea shooter of a triangle blowing rocks, you know, blowing these things up. They became smaller and smaller and smaller until you can completely eradicate them. That's all the idea. Another company came along, right? And they did basically the exact same game. And the court first has to look at what's the idea here versus What's the expression of that idea? And that's one of the analysis that the court had to perform there. Look, the, the idea of having a spaceship in space blasting asteroids out of it, that's not protectable. And then you say, okay, well, we have to have the asteroids represented in some capacity. That's the idea, not protectable. Now, then you look at the, the basics of the design of it. Are the, is the artwork the not, again, kind of the non-utility. There's concept which I can explain, the merger doctrine, scenes affair doctrines. These all these definitely apply in these situations. But the court is doing the analysis, first separating the, the 
idea elements from the uh, from the artistic elements, so to speak. And you can't get in trouble for copying the idea. I want to create a game with a spaceship shooting, you know, asteroids. But you know, then you look at the artwork. Now, to go back to kind of the, what what you were asking about, the way that the court analyzes infringement cases is it's copyright law. This is one of the fundamental premises of copyright law requires actual copying. So you, the significance of that is you can create artwork and I can create artwork. And it just so happens that my artwork is literally in every way, shape and form identical to your artwork. Okay. That is not copyright infringement, believe it or not. Absolutely not copyright. I see the perplexed look on your face. Here's the reason: you created your artwork. I was I created the same artwork, but I was living in a mountaintop in Tibet. Okay, studying with Tibetan monks. I had no contact to the outside world. I could not possibly have actually copied your work. I created it completely independently of what you did. And even though they are literally identical. It's not copyright infringement. The first thing you need to establish in any copyright infringement case is actual copying. Now, mm-hmm. here's where it gets into the heart of what you were asking. You, again, you have a piece of work. I have an identical piece of work, identical piece of work. You can't prove that I copied it. Okay. You have no evidence whatsoever that I copied it. So what the courts then employ is what's known as the substantial similarity test. The first threshold of that test is that you can prove I had access to your work before I created mine. And if you so if you created that artwork, let's use 2022, okay, and you threw it up on the internet, everybody, I would have had access to that clearly because it's out there on the internet. Anybody can get a hold of it. Um, and so if you prove that I have access to it, that your work was accessible, you can't prove that I directly copied it, but you can prove it was accessible to me. And once you then prove it was accessible to me, now we compare the works and you're like, mine is substantially similar to yours. And so you have access to your work and a substantial, my work is substantially similar to yours. The court from there can infer that I copied your work and is therefore copyright infringement. It's weird how it works that way. It's unlike patents, for example, whereas when you get a patent, you have an absolute mon- monopoly over that which you patented. doesn't matter if I copied it intentionally or unintentionally or otherwise. You have the exclusive rights to use that design that you patented. I can't touch it even if I didn't even know about it, right? And that's one of the major differences between patents and copyrights. So the proving you have access, that's going to come up in a minute. So, um, uh, but I, I appreciate those points. I think all of those are pretty clear. And, you know, not to insult what you do for a living, but at the end of the day, a lot of this does come to who has enough money to fight this in court. The, and, I was going to mention, that's the other yeah. thing you mentioned. There's there's always a legal consideration and a practical consideration, okay? The, the you know, I, I once read, uh, there was a great cartoon. It was one of those, like, far side cartoons, I don't remember, but it was just like a single panel. And it was, an, it was a client sitting in the lawyer's office, and the lawyer said to the client, you have a great case, Mr. Smith. How much justice can you afford? And that's the practical consideration. You, yes, you know, this is why, you know, let me be clear. I am not aware of any instances of this occurring. This is my disclaimer. But it is a lot easier to sue a ma and pa operation than it is to sue Google or Sony because Google and Sony can litigate you out of existence. And that's a practical reality. Now, I won't get into, you know, legal help and that type of thing. Copyright Act has a prevailing party provision in there if you can prove infringement and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is if you end up in federal court with a trademark or really focus on copyright with a copyright infringement case, small cases are 60 to $100,000 to pursue if you want to pursue copyright infringement. And if you're going up against, you know, a company that has unlimited resources, 
they can file motion after motion to block everything that you're doing and just make it cost prohibitive for you to pursue it. And that's a practical reality. Um, I'm not saying that they're ne necessarily they they use that and you know as as an impediment to you, but it is something I have to advise clients all the time. Is this sort of thing worth pursuing? Looking at it from the, the other perspective, let's just say you do have the money to litigate it. Somebody's infringing your copyright. Well, we look at, you know, what are the damages that you suffered as a result of it? Somebody made a couple copies of it. Are you going to go for a $60,000 lawsuit because you had $6,000 in damages? Are you going to, and even if you get $6,000, are you suing somebody that can't afford to pay you the damages anyway? Those are all practical considerations that right. we look look at in litigation cases. So um, the goal of winning something like this, you could one or all or any combination of trying to recoup costs where if you're going US to US, the person getting sued could file bankruptcy and you get nothing. Um, the ability to shut down the sales of their product, at least in the US, and then um, I'm, I think there's some kind of way over our head and probably out of the scope of this conversation anyway, but if they have 10,000 in stock left, but they can't afford to pay you what you won, they transfer that to you or something like that. There's, there's basically, yeah, you have to decide what the goals are and the, those would be the main goals for something like a hardware product that was cloned, correct? Yeah, I mean, oftentimes it's not even a matter of money, right? Sometimes it could be a matter of reputation because somebody is creating a product or a service that's inferior to your own. Right. And that's attributable to you. And people think that that inferior, let's stick to copyright, artwork, photography, whatever it is, is a poor, it's poor quality. And you may not want that attributable to you. Um, that's usually a trademark concept, but oftentimes it is exactly that because you want to come, you want to control your own intellectual property. Now in the trademark sense, trademarks differ from copyright in the sense that in the trademark sense, you must police your own mark. You have to go out and prevent people from using your trademarks. If you don't, your mark can be diluted and you can lose your trademark protection. Copyright doesn't have the equivalent, but I'll give you a good, very well-known examples, right? Every time you go to a restaurant, what happens? Can I get a Coke? And they'll say, is Pepsi okay? That is years of the Coca-Cola Corporation and Pepsi for that matter, but mainly Coca-Cola training people and restaurants and everything else that, you know, you don't order Coke. Coke is not a generic name for a soft drink, just like you don't. And Xerox Corporation did this. Mm -hmm. You don't Xerox documents, you photocopy documents. Then they have to sue people as well if they see people that are using marks that are confusingly similar to, similar to their own. They have to write these cease and desist letters, maybe even file trademark, you know, infringement cases and the like in order to police their mark, because if they don't affirmatively police it, they can lose it. Copyright's a little bit different. You don't have those affirmative policing obligations on, you know, necessarily on there. You still, you're not going to lose your copyright if you have the copyrighted work, but you're failing to enforce it. First of all, statute of, statute of limitations, you have three years to enforce it. But the main thing is you don't want, you know, if you want to control it, this happens to like my photographer clients all the time where, for example, their material is ending up online. And when they're making a living out of their photographs, right, their material by selling them, be it to art galleries or online or other things, and all of a sudden it's just circulating wildly and anybody can get a hold of it, they're actually losing money, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, and they're, they're definitely incurring harm because they've lost control of their work. It's out there in the digital universe and suddenly they no longer have any control over it. And so there's all sorts of reasons. And sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, if it's music licensing, for example, it's a perfect example. You don't want your music, but you say you're a composer. You don't want your music to end up in a porn or something like that, right? You need to keep control over the distribution of your music. It's the same thing. It's all intellectual property. That's copyright issue right there. Um, but there are multiple reasons that might be just more than money, and that is maintaining the control or the distribution of your 
intellectual property, maintaining the integrity of your intellectual property uh, and the value of it, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So um, everything that you've said, by the way, so far is is applying to what I'm about to start getting into. But I'll start with a happy story for once. It might be the last one in this podcast. But um, years ago, I used to sell little mod chips for consoles to enable RGB. And I'm sitting with my cousin drinking a beer one time and we're talking about how it's going to look. And we had a napkin drawing or all of a sudden somebody that I sort of knew came up with the same design, parallel thinking. So I reached out to them and said, hey, yours is better. Um, do you want to work together? And they said, yes. So that was awesome. That was Bordy Peter Bartman. Everybody knows him in the scene. Awesome person. But that was that was something that actually happens all the time because it's not very uncommon for two nerds to look at the same problem and have the same solution, even if they've never met and never at all interacted. So in that situation, that was cool. Everything's fine. But what if the parallel thinking situation happens and we had a, something happen recently where somebody came up with a design. It's their own design. That's based off an open source piece and a reseller contacted them and said, uh, you know, how much for a bulk order? And they said X price. And they said, that's too much. Sell it cheaper or I'm going to clone your design. They actually came right out and said that in a written email. So if, that was not the case. If they if they just said if they just said how much and they disappeared and they went and made their own and person number one who actually designed it made theirs, you could argue that was parallel thinking. You could be in court forever. You could drop fifty grand trying to argue this, and nothing comes of it. However, what if the situation like this one is where there's just an email saying I'm going to steal your product if you don't sell it cheaper? Does that make it easier to fight in court? Well, it, it's uh, there's a couple of concepts there. You know, first of all, um, you always, always, always start with whether there's a protectable element there, right? Was was that an unprotectable idea in that design, or was it a copyrightable expression of an idea? So let's just assume the latter for for mm -hmm. our example here. Let's just say that this design is a design. That is a, like an artistic design of some sorts, or maybe software code or something along those lines. Okay, so we have a copyrightable expression there. In terms of, you know, if it's copyright, and this is, I'm glad you raised this point because the way copyrights work, the moment you put that design, that copyright, again, I'm focusing just on a copyrightable design. The moment you put that copyrightable design down on paper, to use an old school term, um, it's it's known as fixed in a, in a tangible medium. So whether you record it or did you know put it in a digital device or writing notes on a paper or writing your graphic design on a piece of paper, the moment you do that and it's fixed in this tangible form, it is copyrightable. Or I'm sorry, it is copyrighted, and mm. you own it. You own the copyright of it. Period. End of story. And once you have that copyright. Section 106 of the Copyright Act gives you five or six exclusive rights, including the right to make copies. That's obviously the number one right. So you have that right. Now, just because you have that right, there was a, a court, the Supreme Court decision that came out in 2019, I think, 2019. Because there, there were, it was undecided. D different jurisdictions were uh different circuit courts were deciding different things and the Supreme Court ultimately resolved it and said, the only way to enforce your copyrights, basically, is you have to register the copyright. And so this is key to what you're asking. So if you have a copyrighted design and if you first want to sue on it, first thing you need to make sure that you have done is registered your copyright because you won't be able to file a lawsuit in federal court unless and until you register the copyright. Once you do that, though, the Copyright Act provides what's known as statutory damages. Statutory damages under the Copyright Act run from a minimum of $750 per infringement up to a maximum of $30,000 per infringement. If it's willful, like the example you just gave, I'm, you give this to me, you sell it cheaper, or I'm going to steal it. That's 
probably looking at a willful case of willful infringement, and the statute gives you $150,000 per <laughs> infringement. So if you're going to be dumb enough to put something like that in writing, do this or I'm going to steal your copyrighted work, you're basically that, you know, would be admitted into court at the end of the day as under various theories, but ultimately it's evidence that your infringement was willful. And if you have a registered copyright there, you're looking at $150,000 per infringement, which could escalate to millions of dollars of damages in a hurry, as you can imagine. Right. So now that would require, and I, I, I'm going to skim, skim over this part because we still want to get to the meat and potatoes of this, but that would then require them to the original uh, creator to then file a copyright for it and then just basically, you know, do do a minimal amount of work, spend a little bit of money, and then go down that road. And a lot of people, that still might not be enough for them to do it. And the, the person I'm thinking of makes lots of things. So that might be not worth their time as a whole. However, to the point that you were just making about protecting, protecting yourself, protecting the future, the company that threatened to clone is coming up as one of the most notorious cloners in the scene now not the most we'll get to them later but they're in the uk so does any of that offer any protection for people out you know i guess we have to talk about us obviously so um you know is there any protection for that in that same sense first of all there's the burn convention b-e-r-n-e the burn convention is effectively a treaty among most of the countries in the world where they're going to respect the copyrights of you know each of the other parties and recognize the copyrights and stuff but then you have concepts of jurisdiction and so even if you know the way it was this is not my area so let me be clear about that uh, up front. But as a general proposition, uh, you do, if you have a British company that's infringing your work, subject to all these ob- relatively obscure federal requirements, procedural requirements, uh, you know, young lawyers, no minimum contacts, and the international shoe case and things like that that are just cause me stress to even think about. But, you know, if you've got a British company, in order to get jurisdiction over them, typically you very much might have to go physically sue them in England in order to procure, have jurisdiction over them. And then in many areas, you then have to apply the copyright laws of that jurisdiction. Now, you know, we, ours from England are very, very similar uh, because we're from England when it really comes right down to it. Um, So, yeah, you do have jurisdictional problems and it may trigger the copyright laws of the other states. But the copyright laws of the different countries are substantially similar. Their moral rights differ from country to country. That's a little uh, difficult to address. But in terms of enforcing, you may very well need to go out there and sue them. Now, there are all sorts of things which may subject them to the jurisdiction of the United States. A good example, the DMCA, that's that's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. If if they if some of your intellectual material is, you know, uh, online, you can file a DMCA takedown notice. And in order that process oftentimes requires other members of other countries to submit to the jurisdiction of the United States, which means you could sue them here. But Mm -hmm. short of that, you might have to go there to enforce your rights. So in a situation like this, where the this one thing that we're talking about probably isn't worth it. However, there's a handful of people all around the world, at least one also in the UK, who've had their products stolen or or maybe, you know, maybe it's right on that line where they probably stole it, but there's no real way to prove it. If there's one scenario in which it's indisputable, you know, I, I just emailed you telling you I'm going to clone it and here's the new product up for sale. Is is there a way to treat that like, okay, we're all going to chip in together. You know, everybody that's been cloned by this person, we'll all split the lawyer fees and then we'll all split what comes out of it because now it's not about one person and one product. It's about groups of people who want to stop this person from continuing to clone and steal. Well, I mean, the difficulty in that scenario is each infringement is treated separately. So even though it's one person cloning everybody's work, all of our claims are different from one another. 
So we can theoretically, I imagine, uh, we'd all be different plaintiffs. We could pool our resources, but we're all still pursuing effectively independent lawsuits against this person. It's almost better, you know, just to, sure, everybody could chip in and hire one attorney, but each party would have a separate claim in that situation because it's a separate infringement. It's not like a class action lawsuit. The way that a class action lawsuit works here in the United States is we all have the same exact claim. Uh, we have the co commonality basically between the claims and the law and that type of stuff. And we have to establish that so that we could be lumped together as a class. Typical example might be, uh, you know, you see cases like this, everybody with a Dalkin Shield case, right? Was that, you know, you see this um uh, what was the the spray, the pesticide spray, where mm -hmm. all these plaintiffs, all these people from all over the company suffered the same harm as a result of the same facts. And as a result, they can join together as a class, sue together as a class using one attorney pursuing one or more defendants. That's different than each of us has a separate copyright claim our claims are different from one another. Hey, he took my music. He took my game. He took my artwork. Those are all different things requiring different proof. There's no commonality there. So pooling your money doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Sure, you can all use the same lawyer, but that lawyer is effectively pursuing different cases for each plaintiff against that. From the defendant's perspective, though, you're just like, yeah, now I'm fighting seven different cases uh, whether they all have one attorney or not, I'm a defendant in seven lawsuits now. Okay, so that that last statement you just made would be the number one deterrent from somebody saying, you know what, I'm in the U.S., I have a couple of friends in the U.K. that make good products, screw it, I'm just going to steal them, start, start making my own and selling them here in the U.S. That would be the deterrent, is if you keep cloning, eventually something like that's going to happen. And while all six or seven of those aren't going to be winners, I would then have to pay to defend six or seven different cases in court for people that are in coming out. In that case, me. yeah. And this comes back to our concept of justice is expensive, right? And and yeah. so, you know, there are many, many companies that have effectively been sued out of existence uh, for that reason, because just the multitude of lawsuits that they're confronted with they can't they can't pay for them all and maybe they have insurance but insurance runs out but if things are willful if you look if you're stealing somebody else's material that's an intentional act you're not going to have any insurance to cover that and mm. so that's a situation where theoretically you could be sued out of existence because you can't afford to keep defending all these different lawsuits yes that's a deterrent but also a deterrent is not just statutory damages like the willful infringement damages, but in in many cases, if you're the, the standard is, you know, if your conduct is malicious or opp and oppressive and this type of stuff, there may be a basis for punitive damages. Punitive. One of the more famous cases that I saw is, you know, punitive damages are a deterrent in and of itself to prevent defendants from engaging in that kind of conduct. And one of the famous cases was a Curious case. It was like the McDonald's coffee case. A lot of people remember that case where this woman got burned by McDonald's coffee and she won like five million dollars. And you're like, that, that, that to me didn't make sense upon initially hearing it. Right. There's no way this person had a little burn and she suffered coffee. But what happened in that case is um, best recollection. Again, don't you know, I could be a little mm -hmm. bit shady on the details here, but best recollection was effectively that the coffee was at such a high temperature, 140 right. degree temperature or whatever it was, and that could cause burns. That fact by itself, not so relevant. What was relevant is that person A got burned, person P got burned, person C got burned, and they kept telling McDonald's, it's too hot, you need to change the, the conduct here. And eventually person D came along and the judge, jury eventually said, enough's enough. You knew very well that your conduct was inappropriate, that your coffee was too hot, and now you're exposed to punitive damages. So if we slap $5 million on you, will that now deter your conduct from doing this in the future? That's what the purpose of punitive damages are for. Punitive damages are every day in any court 
if the conduct is egregious enough, could expose somebody to punitive damages. And in many instances, there are statutes like under the Copyright Act for willful infringement, which gives you elevated damages, again, with the intent of deterring bad conduct. Okay. So if you're in um, if you're in one of the countries that's part of this treaty, so let's just U.S., Canada, U.K., let's just say for now, um, it's, you know, that's something that would be a deterrent to cloners. Uh, and, you know, it, it, in something that's worth fighting in a case where there's repeated offenses where, you know, a lot of people are getting hurt a little bit. So that all adds up that, you know, that becomes a lot of hurt at the end of the day. But the big one here, and the reason I bothered you with this is there is, and I mind you, I haven't said names of anybody, including where I actually have the proof in the emails and everything, but this one, I'm going for it. Company called Bitfunks out of China. They also operate out of probably 10, 15 other names, some of which make sense, you know, Mandarin name versus English, but they're, they're on a bunch of different names. It's one person. Now, I'm sure they have a staff at some point, but it all it's one person running the company and one person doing the cloning. And it's gone so far as they have partner companies that they work with that they sometimes they trick them into helping. Sometimes they're more than happy to help, but they have products purchased from somebody. So they have Bob's glass of water purchased, shipped to their partner company, Keiko International in the UK. And, you know, that's the sales receipt. And then they will send them to China. They'll clone that product and then release it on the market. And Keiko was an interesting uh, scenario because we have all of the emails where they admitted that it was a clone and said, oh, we won't sell it on our store or on Amazon anymore. We'll just dump it off on AliExpress. And of course, that made nothing. Uh, but when we, I originally had that conversation with everybody, we didn't know that Bitfunks was one person, and we didn't know that that was the origin of a lot of cloning. The most recent one is they released a subpar uh, case uh, for a shell for a console. It's not bad, but they shipped it in a box that is a 100% clone of a good quality company that also happens to be in China. Good person behind it, good products. 100% what you were talking about before. They basically stole the box so now when people open up that fine product, not great, but it's fine, that insults and, and gives a bad reputation to the person who has gone out of their way to make great products. So the problems that I have here and what makes things complicated is first and foremost, how do we stop this one person from stealing out of the pockets of people all over the planet? And how do we, and do we even bother talking to their partners, if you will, because a lot of people didn't know at first what they were doing. Um, I just did an interview. I don't, uh, I'm, you know, Jan from Councils for You in Sweden was talking to this person. And then when he realized that he was cloning, he basically said, I don't want any more contact with you. I'm not having any part of this. So there are some people that are accidentally, but there's some people like Keiko International that just openly would buy products from from stores. And there, there is more than enough proof of this, which is why I'm pretty sure I'm not going to get sued for it. But they would buy products, ship it to them. And then three weeks later, they would show a picture of the exact same thing with Keiko International stamped on it. And they would tweet it out saying, what do you think of our new product? So, and that was all being sent to this one person who runs Bitfunks, who's just cloning all of this stuff and flooding the market with it and getting very creative with, you know, they'll steal two products and then make an open source product and then say, oh, well, they're just mad because we're making open source. I don't know. It's not what we're talking about. So is there any way to even go down the road of shutting down this one person who has stolen so much from so many people well, across the globe? Yeah, you got here. There's, you know, with the packaging concept, there's other concepts other than copyright or trademark infringement. You've got trade dress for example, right? I mean, if you use a Coca-Cola bottle and you replace the actual Coca-Cola in it with some, some sort of inferior product, okay, you are, first of all, probably infringing on the Coca-Cola trademark, uh, mm. seemingly trading on their name, but you're certainly using their trade dress for your product and it's an inferior product. So Coca-Cola obviously would want to shut them down on both counts because there's a trademark 
and there's a trade dress. There's what's known as unfair competition laws that also govern some of the same thing. General, you know, fraud, misrepresentation. Potentially, you have to really look at the details stuff. But, you know, for to, in order to sh shut the, like this person down in particular, I can tell you this. I, I, I won't name names, but I do represent a client right now that we have a game and that game was copied, clearly copied by another company located in Vietnam. And you do a, and we did a side-by-side -side comparison of the work. Absolutely, unequivocally infringement, in my opinion. They were selling it on the Google App Store. They were selling it on the, on the Apple Store, okay? And we had some challenges there. But at the end of the day, we had to hire counsel in Vietnam which is where we're suing them now. We hired Vietnamese counsel to file a lawsuit in Vietnam utilizing Vietnamese copyright laws. And the reason we can do that, again, the Berne Convention, so they recognize we have a copyright and we can go there and sue them. But we, even though they were putting that product on Apple and on Google, we had to go to Vietnam in order to shut them down. And we're that's that's active. It's actively it's an active case right now. OK. And so that's a similar situation. It doesn't matter if it's one person or a company. The point is, you got somebody in China. This is why they do it in China. This is why they do it in Russia quite a bit as well, because you have two things. One is so many people, it's so difficult for people to go to China and go to Russia, hire counsel there and sue them. And even if you do, you have the courts can be protective of their own citizens fighting a U.S. citizen or an English citizen company going over there to sue one of their own. You've got challenges. And these are areas, again, definitely outside my area of expertise, but that's how and why they get along away with it as long as they do, because it's really, there are many challenges to going there and trying to shut them down. So sometimes companies make a decision, well, we're going to have to live with it. Some stuff. So we go to the source in that case, we try to go to Apple, we try to go to Google, there's your DMCA takedown that we talked about or previously, right, where we're saying, hey, uh, now if they fire a file a counter notification, recalling the way it would work, you know, if you say, hey, Google, shut this company down, stop this because it's infringing our work, the way the DMCA process works is they have to send notification to the person who put that material up there and they have to say, we have to take this down because we received a complaint about it. Now, if you want to file a counter notification, we'll put it back up and it'll stay up unless the party that complained about it sues you. But in that counter notification, you have to consent to the jurisdiction of the United States. So if you don't get through that DMCA process where they consent to the jurisdiction of the United States, you're pretty much going there, Vietnam or to China or to Russia. That can be prohibitive to a lot of people. The claims, though, shouldn't change, right? I mean, if they are infringing your copyrighted material or your patents or your trademarks or all of the above, those are still the claims, uh, you know, they're, whether um, they're here in the United States or there. You still have the same claims. The fact is they are using your trade dress, presumably, to that's another concept called passing off similar to trademark infringement, where they're effectively using your material, your trade dress, your logos in order to, to, you know, to, to pass them off as their own when they're manufacturing this inferior product. And that's damaging potentially if you're shipping things internationally, that's damaging your sales, number one, damaging your reputation in those other countries. And that's a reason if you have the resources, why you'd go there to shut that down. So there is one advantage there. Um, at least one of the people cloned also is China, born and raised. And I also work almost daily with developers all over China that work their butts off and are the opposite of cloners. And it really, really burns them up when people say the words Chinese cloner. Because if you're in the tech industry, you know what that means. You don't, you're not talking about an entire country of people. You're talking about this type of scenario. 
but not everybody understands that. So the fact that we have people there that would be willing to help, um, I think it might be a big step forward in this. But the the question that I have is that I'm still confused about, even though Allison explained it to me a little bit in a previous call. My Allison, my partner, Allison? Yes, your partner, Allison. Um, Let's give her a shout out, Allison Rothman. Shout out to Allison. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But I, when I first saw all of this stuff unfold, um, I got the company wrong. I originally thought it was the English company, which that might just be a cover. It might be this person um, the legal, uh, the legal name of the person who owns that company sounds very English. So, you know, it could just be that they hired a local agent and it's still run by everybody in China. But I thought that this was a company company. So there's 10, 15 people who run it, who work together. And that's much harder to deal with because they could just close down and open up under a new company name. But with one person behind it, does that make it easier to go after well, now you're getting into the concept of, you know, corporate law, business law. I'll say business law because applies to LLCs. And again, they're in another jurisdiction completely. So it's out of my area. So I can speak generally because this sort of thing happens here in the United States as well. You know, if you are operating as a sole proprietor, for example, you're not protected legally. Anybody can sue you individually. But so the way to get around that is you form a corporation, even as a single member, if it's an Mm -hmm. LLC or a single shareholder, if it's a corporation, you get the same protections that Microsoft gets. Okay, and that is a shield against personal liability. If you are maintaining the corporate formalities and doing things right and operating legitimately, and there's all sorts of reasons, uh, you know, outside of that. But the idea here is that if you, the reason that you set up an entity such as that is so that your personal assets are shielded against liability in the event that somebody sues the corporation. So what you're, and that's true if it's a one person corporation or a 15 person corporation. The idea here is if they're acting in the name of the corporation, liability is limited to the corporation. That's it. There are exceptions. Exceptions are what we called are referred to as alter ego liability or piercing the corporate veil and piercing the corporate veil or the courts will allow you to pierce that corporate veil, which is another way of saying get through that liability protection layer under various circumstances. And that's what you do if you see this stuff like, hey, this individual is defrauding, you know, people individually. You may not get that, you know, protections of the corporation there. Or even if you do, you may, they may, the court may be inclined to strip the the protections of the corporation because the individual is acting fraudulently or doing something else. And basically treating the corporation, the key is, they're treating the company, the entity as a shell or as a scam. It's not, they're not really operating in it. They're using it just to protect themselves while engaging in really bad conduct. That potentially is a means by which to pierce the corporate veil or expose you to alter ego liability. Also, if to the extent that you have, now I'm not sure about, you know, fraud misrepresentation in the alter ego context, but it could potentially be a basis. It's, you know, similarly, if, you know, the, the biggest thing is like, if you're commingling assets, you're, you're not, you're treating the company as a shell and you're just, you know, you're using it to pay your own expenses and you're taking its income as your own income and you're not keeping, these are ways where plaintiffs look at this and say, yeah, we're going to strip away the protections of the, the corporate veil. Corporation second line of defense outside of the entity formation is to have insurance. I can tell you this, that irrespective of, you know, whether the veil is pierced or not because of misrepresentation, fraudulent conduct on behalf of the owner, no insurance that I'm aware of protects people against that sort of conduct. Insurance will protect you from negligence. You get into a car accident, whatever, you're protected. It's not going to protect you if you intentionally run somebody over. And Mm. that's the same thing here. So, you know, if, you know, then if the assets are insufficient, if the company is in, in, 
inadequately capitalized in order to cover any of these anticipated liabilities, that's a basis to pierce the corporate veil. If they're acting using fraud, misrepresentation may be a basis to pierce the corporate veil. They won't have insurance. The point of all of that is when you hit somebody operating behind a corporation with all of these things, there's a very high chance that a court would say, you're not getting the benefit of the corporate protections here. And you, you go for alter ego liability. Okay. So um, I guess two questions for you then to, to wrap it up. Um, one, I guess, you know, hopefully this isn't too complicated, but if the people listening who have gotten their stuff stolen and hear the context, they hear what we've talked about and they understand like, okay, person X has cloned 35 designs. One of them was mine. Let's go after them. Not you know, not I had a product that I could have made a hundred bucks on that's gone, like a real so, something that matters. What is the next step that should be taken? I guess, especially for the person in China, contact somebody in China to get legal representation in China and go from there. Yeah, I mean, it really depends. I mean, we, we for example, our firm, we have uh, relationships with lawyers all over the world. And so people come to us and we reach out to them and then we f help facilitate the process. That's not to suggest you need to go to us, uh, but there are some, you know, Greenberg Traurig is a good example of a law firm that has, I don't know, 2,100 lawyers in it, and they have offices in Beijing, they have offices in Moscow, they have offices everywhere, you know, but you're paying 12, 13, $1,400 an hour for some of these attorneys at a minimum, so you go to a firm like that, it's really expensive. If you're just a person, you're like, gee, do I just start randomly picking lawyers in China? Probably not the best way to go about it. So you would contact maybe a firm like ours and we could say, hey, we've got some relationships out there. We can steer you in the right direction. And that's if you don't want to go to a massive international law firm and pay, again, $1,500 an hour. It's, it's expensive, some of these big ones. So look for legal help and, and go with what you know to start here. I would consult a small, you know, a firm like ours, see if they have contacts out there. Or if you've got the money and you, you, you know, you want to go for one of these international law firms, by all means, that's a way to go. But the ultimate net result of it is in most situations, not all, because that same Chinese company could have sufficient contacts here in the United States to sue them in the United States if they have a local office. Sony, get away from China. Sony has a U.S. headquarters, right? They're located up in Foster City, I think, up in the Bay Area, okay? They clearly have a presence. They're a Japanese company, clearly has a presence here in the United States. They can be sued here in the United States. The other companies are hiding out there in China or whatever, so then you have to do a whole analysis. And, and a firm like ours can do that analysis. Do they have sufficient context to expose themselves to jurisdiction here in the United States? Can this be resolved through a DMCA takedown type of process? If neither of those two things, we, a firm like ours, would say, okay, well, we can't DMCA them. We don't have, they don't have a sufficient contacts here in the United States. Uh, we may need to go to China to sue them. And so we would say, Let's see if we can work, you know, and, and help get you somebody in China that we know with one of our relationships out there. And it, yeah, largely it's a matter of working with Chinese counsel because you would be a plaintiff in a Chinese court with Chinese counsel representing you against a Chinese defendant who's operating predominantly in China. And things change. And this is why a firm like ours does that analysis. You know, are they are they advertising and marketing out here? Are they trying to reach U.S. consumers? Are you know, do they have a physical presence? All these different things are things that we look at because we'd rather sue them here than there. And mm. so that's the first to me. The first step is analyzing whether there's a basis to sue them locally or do you have to go there? And then if you have to go there, is it better to contact some directly, use local counsel to help you find someone out there, or screw it, I, I can pay $1,500 an hour to go hire Greenberg Traurig and then sue them through using their attorneys out there because they have a presence there. Hmm. Okay. 
I will um I will point certain people in the right direction for that. I wish I had time to do it. If I won the lottery, that's some of the things I would love to do is is do this stuff pro bono for you know for on my dime, I guess. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. And uh, luckily for me, I don't you know I'm just here talking about these things. And the only names that I brought up, I have all the emails and all the proof. So if they want to fly over from England to sue me for defamation. It's a very expensive flight just to have an email held up in court and walk right out of there. So I don't think I'm in any any danger here. But the last question I wanted to ask you, unless you think I'm in danger here, Keith, but uh, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to ask you is what are the chances of people listening to this and saying, OK, so that's how the system works. I'm going to use this to clone people's stuff because I know that you know, after listening to that podcast, people would have to jump through all of these hoops to come after me. So I'm going to start using this as my guide on how to clone. Do you, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think more good or bad would come out of this? Do you think, you know, what are, what is really your, your opinion on this stuff? I'm not really sure to where to go with that, but I would start with, you know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer and uh, my first loyalty is to the law. And doing the cloning and the like is illegal. But, you know, there are, look, bad people are going to exist in this world one way or the other. And they're always looking to do bad things and to gain an upper edge, you know, by skirting the law and the like. So, you know, the only thing that I could say is, you know, you, you could be exposed if you're stealing some, look, if you're, you're not going to probably steal, probably not going to steal something if you're in the in China, if it has no value here in the United States. So if you're stealing something that has some value, it's possible you're stealing with somebody who could afford to hire an attorney and go get you in China. And then again, like I said, we are actively doing right that in Vietnam, which is close to China. It's not, you know, it's just a, an, a Southwest Airlines flight. I'm using that. I'm kidding, right? That's a, it's an hour flight or whatever it is to get over to China. So we we happen to represent somebody that's like, I'm not going to take this line down. I'm going after it. I'm losing money as a result of this. And I'm going to stop to put a stop to it because I've got more games coming out and I need to put a definitive uh, end to this. So they are taking those, they are taking those steps. Bottom line is it's still illegal in China. There are still copyright laws in China. To my knowledge, you know, I'm not aware of the Chinese government or the courts sanctioning infringement and bootlegging stuff. It just it's difficult to get out there. Um, and there's a higher percentage of it taking place out there. I know Chinese lawyers. They operate within the con confines of the law. And um and as a result, sorry, uh, and, and as a result of that, laws do exist in China. These same copyright laws, you know, et cetera, exist in China. So they are enforceable is the bottom line. And I don't remember if China is is um, a member of the Berne Convention or not. But I do know, you know, I've dealt with this uh, in the movie, in the motion picture context, uh, where we had licensed properties to Chinese companies. And yeah, we had Chinese counsel representing us uh, for infringement. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm always of the, uh, the mindset of, you know, there's definitely people that are going to come after me for just having this chat, but are you going to not teach people how to sharpen a knife because somebody might stab somebody with it? Or are you going to teach people so that they could build houses, cut their meat, do it? You know what I mean? So it's, I'd rather have the info out there and hope that more good people use it. Well, than bad, it's kind of but... like, you know, every day you drive a car, car accidents happen, fatalities happen, people die, but you don't stop driving cars as a result of it. It's always a matter of risk assessment. You know, when you're putting stuff out there in the marketplace, you have to understand that anything you create, any intellectual property that you create could be stolen by somebody else. Does that mean you stop creating? No. What you do is you choose the best that you can to protect it by cop, you know, registering the copyright, for example, police going out there policing, looking for infringing uses, sending your DMCAs, sending cease and desist letters. And at the end of the day, you know, if it's worth it for you, then you initiate, you know, lawsuits, litigation in order to, to protect and enforce your rights. But it's never bulletproof. And it's always a risk assessment and there's always a value proposition associated with it. 
yeah, they're infringing in China, but my biggest market is here in the United States. So maybe I'm losing $100,000 in China, but I'm making $2 million here in the United States. Do I want to fight over that $100,000? Probably not. Um, you know, so you do those sorts of uh, an analyses at, at every stage. And that's why it's good to have legal representation to help walk you through what the risk assessment is, what the analysis is, what the likelihood of success is in any particular case uh, for infringement, because cloners clone games because there's a lot of gray areas in there as to I mentioned before this idea expression dichotomy. What's an idea that they can take versus what's an expression or how much is this substantially similar or not? Was I inspired by this game as opposed to directly copying this game? There's a lot of gray areas. There's no bright line test and people are going to test those lines always. And so that's why it's good to have good, you know, quality legal representation to help you navigate this thing and help you make these decisions and analyze the risks and make the risk assessment and give you uh, an estimation of what the, you know, the costs are going to be. So basically, if you want to, if you want to make a company, everything comes with that. It comes with owning a company, you know? Yeah. You can't just be a, a hobby product and expect to, to skirt by. If, you, if you're going to sell stuff, you're a company that has to deal with company stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the bottom line. You know, you you live in a world with other people in it and some of those people are bad. Uh, so you do what you do and you make a good living doing it and you do the best you can to prevent other people from stealing from you because it's all theft. I mean, in copyright infringement, it's theft it may not be taking somebody's car or money, but it's still theft. And um there are other people, like I said, you know, these bootleggers and things like that. They're pretty blatant about it. Uh, so you do the, you just make a determination as to whether it's worth the, worth it to pursue it or not. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know this was awesome. I really hope a lot of people, you know, take a lot of good away from this and, uh, hopefully we could have one more step towards just trying to, trying to get rid of some of the blatant thievery. Yeah. Well, that would be, you know, in a perfect world, that's, that's where we would be. Cool. Thank you very much, Keith. Oh, my pleasure. It's good talking to you.